This episode of American Hauntings Podcast is brought to you by PenPath. PenPath gives marketing teams and organization the power to lead with data. Their business intelligence dashboards are easy to use, automated, and customized to your needs. I've worked with PenPath on multiple projects, and they are great at really listening to their customers and helping businesses get their products in front of the right audience. Get the complete story for your business by centralizing and accessing all of your data from agencies, departments, and platforms. Learn more at PenPath.com. That's P-E-N-P-A-T-H dot com. Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and today we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're just tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest in the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect that he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Villisca, Iowa. So now, close the curtains, lock the doors, and prepare for the next chapter of Murder in Their Beds. Located along the rolling hills and fields of southwestern Iowa is the small town of Villisca. It was founded in 1859 and a little more than five decades before it became home to a horrific mass murder that wiped out an entire family and their two young guests. It was started by a Burlington and Missouri Railroad agent named B.N. Smith who platted the town along a new rail line. There was already a small farm settlement on the site of the future town, and he decided to call it Villisca, which the white settlers believed was a Sac and Fox Indian word for beautiful view. In truth, the word meant something else entirely, evil spirit. I'd say that judging by what happened there in 1912, the Native Americans were onto something. The Civil War slowed down the construction of the railroad, but it didn't dampen the local enthusiasm for it when it eventually arrived. The town slowly began to grow, and by 1865, Villisca had two stores, a blacksmith shop, a doctor, and a handful of new homes. In 1867, the railroad surveyors returned and finalized the route of the line. Within two years, trains were passing through Villisca on a regular basis. The town began to thrive and would continue to do so for the next 50 years. By then, it had a population of over 2,500 residents. The streets were lined with flourishing businesses and several dozen trains pulled into the depot every day. It was a popular destination in Montgomery County in those days, offering not only stores and shops of just about every kind, but restaurants and a theater as well. Much of the growth in town could be contributed to a hardworking young man named Frank Jones. Frank was born in Steuben County, New York in 1855. He'd go on to live an eventful life as a farmer, school teacher, accountant, 
merchant, banker, and state legislator. He traveled in Europe, met with presidents, and wrote legislation regarding the insurance industry that's still in effect today. He worked to form the Iowa Department of Transportation, chaired the House Appropriations Committee, served on the State Board of Education, and worked for prison reform. He spoke out against socialism and the government control of banks and utilities, advocated conservative politics, and warned against wasting natural resources. Unfortunately, he also became embroiled in a horrible murder case, which is how he is best remembered in southwestern Iowa today. Frank spent the first few years of his life in the Finger Lakes region of New York. His father, a farmer and carpenter, decided to move his family out west, and in 1862, they moved to southern Michigan and a year later to a farm in Illinois. There, Frank attended school for the first time, and his teacher became his role model, encouraging the boy to continue his schooling. In the fall of 1871, he left home to attend high school in the northern Illinois town of Princeton and graduated with honors. He was almost immediately offered a job as a teacher. In the spring of 1875, though, Frank decided to go west with his father to Iowa. Unable to afford the rich farmland near Villisca, they settled on the thin, hilly soil near the tiny town of Gus. Discouraged, Frank planned to return to teaching in Illinois, but when the people of Gus learned he was a school teacher, they made him an attractive job offer to convince him to stay. He quickly gained a good reputation as a teacher. He was an enthusiastic young man who was strict in the classroom but had a good sense of humor. For the next seven years, he farmed in the summer and taught school the rest of the year. In January 1880, he married Maud Haynes, who would remain his wife until his death 61 years later. After Frank married, he decided to try and make his living strictly as a farmer. With help from his father and father-in-law, he built a new home on a small farm that he purchased and did not return to teaching school the following autumn. As luck would have it, the good corn crop of 1880 was followed by a particularly poor one in 1881. He had little choice but to look for other work. This took him to Villisca, where he started working as a bookkeeper for the Baines and Waterman Farm Implement Store. In the spring of 1882, he decided to give up on the idea of farming, moved to Villisca with Maud, and went to work for Baines and Waterman full-time. Villisca was in its heydays in the 1880s, enjoying the prosperity that came with the railroads. It was a busy, bustling place. New buildings were being constructed and opportunities abounded. Frank went to work for an agricultural firm at a time that historians have referred to as the golden age of farming in the Midwest. Land wasn't cheap in those days, but it was affordable. A man could make a living and raise a family on 80 acres of land, perhaps more if he was willing to take on a hired hand or two. The railroads had already made it possible to ship products from coast to coast, and soon markets all over the world would be open. Field work was powered by horses and mules, so long as there were crops and pasture, there was always fuel. New advances in farm machinery made the hard work easier, giving farmers the chance to prioritize their time. A typical farmer milked cows, kept chickens, and made his grocery money each week by selling off the extra eggs, milk, and cream. He could also make more money each year when his cattle, hogs, and sheep were shipped by rail to Kansas City or Chicago. For most, farming wasn't a way to get rich, but it offered a good life and was the main reason why towns like Villisca were able to thrive. More and more people moved to the area, and new farmhouses and barns were raised all around the town. The arriving farmers needed plows, rakes, and cultivators, and their wives needed cloth, sewing machines, stoves, pots and pans, and dishes. There was enough business in a town like Villisca to support several hardware and implement stores. Farmers also needed credit. 
Farming was a way of life where most of the money tended to be made at one time of the year, mostly in the fall after the harvest. It was common for farmers to take out a loan in the spring so that they had the funds to buy seed and livestock, as well as for everyday expenses. After the fall harvest, the loan was usually paid back. Many businesses also offered credit to farmers, usually under similar terms. Frank Jones dealt with these types of credit accounts in his job as a bookkeeper. Baines and Waterman sold every type of hardware and implement needed by the local farmers and a good share of those items was sold on credit. Frank's new employers were pleased with his work, not only because he was a skilled accountant, but also because he soon proved himself to be a productive bill collector. Merchants like Baines and Waterman, who'd been in business for many years, recognized the need to sell on credit and to collect on those accounts, but they also knew how important it was to treat their customers well. They never wanted to offend or make enemies of the customers who were slow to pay, so they left their collections to affable men like Frank Jones. He'd been well-liked as a local school teacher, but those who owed money to the company came to know him as a ruthless and unsympathetic bill collector. He took his collection work seriously and, not surprisingly, there were some who ended up with hard feelings toward him after he pushed them to pay what they owed. During the winter of 1882-83, J.S. Baines and F.G. Waterman had some sort of falling out and decided to close the business. They divided the inventory and bid against one another for the real estate. Frank could have gone with either man, but decided to stay with Baines, mostly because he offered Frank the chance to supplement his bookkeeping income by also selling equipment on commission. It was an opportunity that Frank quickly took advantage of. The following summer, he went door to door selling a new model of sewing machine and also worked with Baines to introduce the Minneapolis Twin Binder to area farmers. The mechanized binder offered a fast, labor-saving method to assist with reaping, and this device, along with the new sewing machine, sold well. Jones made money from the sales, and in 1886, he invested some of it in a choice piece of real estate, a corner lot on Fifth Avenue in Villisca. This was considered the most fashionable part of town. He would not build on the lot for several years, but what was important was that he was moving up and making plans for the future. In early 1890, Frank left Baines and went into business with J.L. Smith, who owned a hardware store. The two men bought out the implement business of J.S. Boise and Son and expanded on the hardware company that Smith owned. Most of the young men who had been Frank's students when he was a teacher were now established farmers in the area and made a reliable customer base for the new business. The company thrived, and Frank was on his way to becoming one of Velisca's wealthiest men. Two years later, in 1892, Smith bought out the hardware store of Jones's former employer, F.G. Waterman, and went back into the hardware business on his own. He sold his half of Smith & Jones to Frank, and on September 1, 1892, Frank had his own business on the south side of the Villisca Town Square. A year later, he began dealing strictly in McCormick farm implements, and business boomed. Things were going so well that in 1894, Frank went into the banking business. He became the fifth partner in the Farmers Bank of Villisca. Frank then tapped his list of customers and friends who'd already supported his foray into the hardware and implement business, and many of them became depositors in the new bank. In 1898, Frank decided to focus on the bank and sold his implement business to the Farland brothers. He was now a widely respected man in the community and he and his family were considered the cream of local society. Bowing to pressure from his wife, he finally got around to building a home on the corner lot on Fifth Avenue. Construction was started that same year on a grand Victorian style home. 
It was a large sprawling affair with a wide porch that stretched all the way across the front, as well as an upper veranda, pitched roofs, and an elaborate gingerbread trim. It was a home worthy of the social status of the Jones family. Over the next three years, Frank began to miss the farm business, and he decided to buy back a half share in the implement store from the Farland brothers. In 1902, he bought the other half and became the sole owner again. During the time that Frank had been out of the business, the Farlands had hired a young man to run the store for him. His name was Josiah Moore, although he's known to his friends as JB or Joe. He was then in his early 30s. He was outgoing and a well-liked family man who was married to Sarah Montgomery, the daughter of a prominent local farmer. JB was a natural salesman and Frank saw no reason not to keep him on as manager. By that time, Frank likely had little to do with the day-to-day -day operations of the store. At the age of 45, he was one of the most successful men in the area. His children, Albert and Letha, were good students and looking forward to attending college. Albert planned to study business and work with his father, while Letha also planned to follow in her father's footsteps and become a teacher. In addition to being a banker and merchant, Frank was the pillar of the local Methodist church where he taught Sunday school, and he also served on the town council. Thanks to his status and influence, he also became interested in politics. In 1903, he ran for a seat in the Iowa House of Representatives. He won easily and was later appointed chair of the Committee on Penitentiaries and Pardons. Frank, along with Representative Fred Maytag from the appliance manufacturing family, was also responsible for overseeing the management of the University of Iowa. He was reelected twice, each time by comfortable margins. However, knowing that senators had more influence than representatives, he decided to run for higher office in 1912. But that's still in the future. Frank worked hard to make a better life for himself and his family, as did J.B. Moore. He worked for Jones at the store for a few years, but when he learned that the John Deere company was looking for dealers that would handle their equipment exclusively, he made a deal with them. His new John Deere dealership opened directly across the street from Jones's store, which he had been managing. Now, no one can say whether Frank and JB were friendly competitors or not, but this business climate has been the subject of much debate over the years. It was a situation that some believed gave Frank Jones a motive for the murders of JB and his family, as we'll explore in future episodes. What we do know is that JB Moore was also one of the leading citizens of Villisca. He had been born in Hanover County, Illinois, and came to Iowa with his parents while still a child. He grew up in Page County and was one of 16 children, although four of his siblings died very young. At the time of the murders, JB had been living in Villisca for 13 years. He had been employed by Frank Jones for nine of those years. He was known as a hardworking man, generous with credit, and kind to friends, neighbors, and customers alike. Sarah Montgomery Moore seemed to have even fewer enemies than her husband. She had been born in Knox County, Illinois in 1873 and had moved to Iowa with her parents and her sister Mary in 1894. Like her husband, she was an active member of Villisca's First Presbyterian Church and was beloved by the children she taught in Sunday school. There was no one who had an unkind word to say about Sarah. She was a lovely, kind-hearted woman and a devoted mother to her children. The Moore's first child, Herman, was born in 1901, followed by Catherine two years later. The two youngest boys, Boyd and Paul, were seven and five years old in the summer of 1912. Of course, they'd never be older than that because on the night of June 9th, their lives were ended before they truly began.
On September 17, 1911, six months after the brutal murders at the Cassaway home in San Antonio, the Axeman struck again. This time he plied his bloody trade in the thriving resort town of Colorado Springs, Colorado. The town had only been around for about 40 years at the time of the murders. It had been founded by William Jackson Palmer, a surveyor for the Kansas Pacific Railroad who envisioned the valley in the shadow of Pikes Peak as the perfect place for a resort community. When he was unable to convince the railroad to follow his route, he started a rail line of his own, the Denver and Rio Grande, with plans to run it all the way down to Mexico City. Colorado Springs was intended to be the first stop on his line. In 1873, Palmer opened the Antlers Hotel and began welcoming travelers from all over the world. Health-seeking individuals were attracted by the high altitude, sunshine, and dry climate of the area, and soon Palmer's visions for a thriving resort town were coming true. Colorado Springs developed into one of the most popular travel destinations in late 19th century America. And among those who flocked to the city were tuberculosis patients, lured by the mineral waters and the extremely dry climate, which was advertised to ease their condition. It wasn't long before the city became one of the most sought after recuperative locations in the country. Travel, scenic beauty, and nearby gold and silver strikes all contributed to the development of the city, and Colorado Springs gained a reputation as a peaceful, almost tranquil place. But that peacefulness was shattered on September 20th of 1911 when the bodies of six people were found slaughtered in their homes. That afternoon, Nettie Ruth left her home on South Sierra Madre Street and walked to the cottage where her sister, May Alice Burnham, lived with her husband Arthur and their children, Nellie Emma, age six, and three-year-old John. She brought some sewing with her that she had planned to work on with her sister. When she arrived at the house, though, it appeared that no one was home. All of the window blinds were drawn and the front door was locked. Nettie assumed that her sister had gone to the home of her friend Anna Merritt, who lived a half block away on Pine Street, and she walked over to meet her. But when Anna answered the door, she said she'd not seen May in several days. At that point, both women began to fear that something was wrong. Nettie decided to call her brother-in-law and see if he knew where his wife might be. Albert Burnham was employed as a laborer at the Modern Woodman of America Tuberculosis Sanatorium, which was located about 12 miles outside of Colorado Springs. He was also a patient at the sanatorium. He'd lived there on and off for years. Over the summer of 1911, his condition had worsened and between his labors at the hospital and his health, he usually only spent one day a week at home with his family. Nettie telephoned the sanatorium and spoke with Albert, who told her that he had not been home since the previous Wednesday and had no idea where May might be. Nettie later said it, that he sounded worried. Nettie and Anna decided to go to the Burnham house and enter using a spare key that May had given to Anna some time before. They hurriedly walked back to West Dale Street and feeling worried and upset, climbed the steps to the back door. The stench of death swept over them as Anna turned the key in the lock. Nettie exclaimed, Oh, suppose we find May and her babies dead in the house. It would be terrible, terrible. In her fright, Nettie had an unknowing premonition of the horror that the two women were just about to find. The lock stuck, and it took more than a minute for Anna to work it loose. Finally, they stepped into the gloom inside the house. On a table in the little back room that the family used as a combination kitchen, dining room, and bedroom were the remains of Sunday evening's dinner. 
Nettie later declared that the room looked just the same as it had when she'd left the home on Sunday evening around 8.45 p.m. The bed in the back room had not been disturbed. The women pushed open the door leading to the front bedroom, half expecting to see some signs of tragedy, but with no idea of the carnage that awaited them. The bed in the front room was soaked with blood. At first, Nettie and Anna did not see the bodies that were tangled in the pile of sheets and blankets on top of the mattress. They only saw blood. Huge, great stains and torrents of gore splashed on the walls and lying in puddles on the floor. Then Nettie saw the body of her niece, little Nellie, lying on the edge of the bed with her skull crushed, and she began to shriek in terror. The two women ran screaming from the house. Two men who were passing by on the street went inside to look, and a moment later, they also rushed outside. Soon, news of a triple murder spread through the streets of Colorado Springs. The coroner, police, and sheriff's office were notified by telephone and investigators converged on the scene. People from the neighborhood began flocking to the house. People in automobiles, buggies, motorcycles, and bicycles began arriving almost at the same time as the police. Later, they were followed by people on foot, and the streetcar company did a booming business, ferrying men, women, and children to Dale Street. Among the crowd were friends and neighbors of the Burnham family, but the majority of the onlookers were what one officer called, quote, the morbid curious. The street in front of the house was filled with people, automobiles and vehicles of every size and description. The crowd watched with great excitement as investigators attempted to search for evidence. Ignoring the policemen who tried to keep everyone back, they tried to look into the windows of the house, hoping to catch a glimpse of the bodies that they'd heard were inside. The newspapers later reported that May and the two children had been sleeping in bed together when the killer entered the house. All three had been savagely beaten with the blunt edge of an axe. May and John had been killed before they could awaken, but Nellie, judging from the position in which her body was found, had woken up during the attack and had tried to escape. The killer had struck her down and she fell across the body of her mother. It was also possible, the police surmised, that she may have been moved after she was killed. As the crowd milled about the house, a neighbor of the Burnhams noticed something odd and brought it to the attention of the police officers on the scene. Almost everyone in the area had come out of their homes to see what was going on, except for the Wayne family. Their cottage was directly behind the Burnham home and it was silent and dark. The blinds had been drawn over the windows and no one was stirring. No one knew much about Henry Wayne, his wife Blanche, or their 18-month-old daughter, Lula May. They had moved to the area only about a month before. Henry was a patient at the same tuberculosis sanatorium where Arthur Burnham lived and worked, and he'd mentioned that a cottage was for rent. The Waynes had been living in Indiana when Henry was diagnosed with tuberculosis and had been advised to move west to a healthier climate. As a member of the modern Woodman of America, he had come to the sanatorium near Colorado Springs, living there as a patient for several weeks and becoming acquainted with Arthur. Soon after, he rented the house on Harrison Place, just around the corner from the Burnham home, and his family moved from Indiana to join him. Police officers decided to investigate. They walked over to the Wayne Cottage, where earlier a neighbor woman had found an ax that she had loaned to Mrs. Wayne, leaning against the house. The axe blade was bloodstained, but the neighbor later told police she thought nothing about it, assuming it had been used to kill chickens. Boy, was she wrong. The police learned otherwise when Assistant Police Chief Springer forced open the door and found Henry Wayne, his wife, and baby lying dead in the same bed. Their skulls had been crushed by the flat side of that axe. They had, like May and John Burnham, 
been killed in their sleep. Unfortunately, there are no original documents about what they found inside of the house, only reports in the newspapers of the time, which stated that the bodies were, quote, nearly nude. There are few other details, but a crime scene expert was called in from Leavenworth, Kansas, and he made a special point to examine the chimneys of two oil lamps that were found in the separate homes. He believed that the killer had handled them. With six murders in two different homes, the authorities grew frantic. Police officers swarmed over the two cottages as more and more spectators descended on the scene. Men swore and cursed and threatened a lynching if the murderer could be found. Women and children, their faces white and streaked with tears, huddled in groups and whispered of the terrible tragedy. The police, sheriff's deputies, and investigators from the district attorney's office searched both houses for clues. They came to believe that robbery had not been a motive in the murders. Mrs. Wayne was still wearing her jewelry and a gold watch was in plain sight in the Burnham home. Nothing appeared to have been taken and nothing in either home had been disturbed. The doors of both houses had been locked and the police believed that the killer had exited through a window. The rear door of the Wayne house was thought to have been opened by a skeleton key made with twisted wire. The killer had also opened a screen door which had been latched with a hook by cutting the screen. He then locked the door from the inside, killed the Waynes and their daughter, and climbed out a window. He'd done the same thing at the Burnham house, but when leaving through a window on the east side of the house, he had knocked over a bottle of ink which had been sitting on the sill. The killer left black fingerprints on a metal bowl that he used in which to wash his bloody hands. The police questioned everyone who lived in the area, but no one had seen anyone going in or coming out of either house on Sunday night. As in San Antonio, the police had few leads. Modern methods of detection had not yet come to the small towns of the region. There was no fingerprint identification and no forensics. Detectives followed the tried and true methods that had served them, often poorly, for years. They could not imagine a killer who would murder small children. It had to be a crime of jealousy, revenge, or both. They probed the relationship between the Burnham and Wayne families and discovered that Henry Wayne had replaced Arthur Burnham as a cook at the sanatorium, although this hardly seemed a motive for murder. Detectives theorized that the murders might have been a result of a love triangle. The theory was that Henry, away from his family in Colorado, had been friendly with another woman and then had broken things off when his wife and daughter had arrived from Indiana. This prompted Denver Chief of Police Hamilton Armstrong to surmise that the killer was a woman, but there's, of course, nothing to suggest that this was true. In fact, it's likely that Henry spent almost all of his time at the sanatorium before he was released. According to interviews, he had no friends in the city and only a few acquaintances at the hospital. The Waynes moved into the cottage on Harrison Place near the railroad tracks where the rent was $6 per month. Henry paid two months in advance. Lula May and the Burnham children played together in the yard behind their respective houses a few times, and May Burnham told her husband that Blanche was a, quote, very nice woman. The police frantically pursued the evidence they had, but as with any sensational crime, there were scores of people who imagined they'd heard or saw something or someone threatening. The case created panic in the city and the investigators were forced to run down each and every report in an effort to satisfy the public and the press. The fact that there was no direct connection between the victims and the alleged suspects made no difference at all. The police feeling the pressure to get the madmen responsible for the murders off the streets began rounding up every drifter, transient, and stranger they could find, grilling them for hours before releasing them. There was little else they could do. 
The investigators were floundering in the dark, looking for anything that might offer a solution to the crimes. The best initial suspect, of course, was Arthur Burnham, the lone survivor. He had a solid alibi, but the police didn't want to take any chances. Arthur's alibi was his health. According to his roommate and Dr. J.A. Rutledge, the superintendent at the sanatorium, Arthur was at the hospital when his family was killed. His tuberculosis had grown worse and he wasn't even close to being healthy enough to swing an ax as many times as it would take to kill six people. Regardless, the police held him for two days. He was allowed to attend the funeral of his family on September 22nd and then was returned to his cell. Later that same evening, he was released and allowed to stay with his in-laws who believed him to be innocent of the crime. During Burnham's questioning, he was able to offer the police the name of a man who might have a connection with his wife, an Italian named Tony Donatel, a childhood friend of May who had wanted to marry her before she met Arthur. Donatel was about 40 years old when the murders occurred and worked as a laborer. He had been married once before, but his wife had left him in 1893 and he divorced her. He lived alone in a one-room cottage and frequently visited with the couple that lived next door. He reportedly also owned a number of other properties that he rented out. Some neighbors described him as being a little peculiar and said he was frequently seen scrubbing the outside of his house to wash away, quote, marks left by witches. It's been suggested that Donatel was paranoid or suffered from delusions, but the likely explanation is much simpler. He was a landlord with cheap properties and had frequent disagreements with some of his tenants. It wouldn't be strange for many of them to scrawl unkind messages on his house. Another theory was that the marks were made by hobos who had developed a series of pictograms that were chalked on houses and fences to let others know of places to avoid or where they would be most likely to get food or a bed. This was especially common near the railroads where Donatel's rental homes were located. May had told her husband that Donatel had been one of her suitors before Arthur arrived in Colorado. She insisted she no longer had any affection for him outside side of friendship, although May's sister Nettie told investigators that Donatel still had feelings for May and that she'd once overheard him saying that May had no business marrying Arthur. By Donatel's own admission, he was friendly with May even after her marriage, but added that he hadn't seen her in, quote, a long time and didn't know where the Burnhams lived. The week before the murders, though, Donatel was working on a sewer line within a half block of the Burnham cottage but he claimed he only knew the Burnham house was somewhere vaguely in that neighborhood. Things didn't look good for Donatel, especially after he was unable to account for his whereabouts on the night of the murders. In addition, investigators discovered red spots on his pants. When they were analyzed though, the spots turned out to be ink. He was eventually cleared by the neighbors that said that he spoke with them on both Monday and Tuesday after the murders and he acted normally and he never mentioned the Burnhams. After Tony Donatel was released, no other serious suspects were ever found. The investigation grew cold and in time was shuffled into the files of the unsolved. The Burnham family was buried in Evergreen Cemetery in Colorado Springs while the battered bodies of the Waynes were loaded on a train and shipped back east to Indiana. Arthur Burnham was admitted to the St. Francis Hospital in November 1911, suffering from the late stages of tuberculosis. He left the hospital at some point in December, but was readmitted on January 26, 1912, after his condition worsened. He died alone at the hospital a few days later, wasted away from tuberculosis, asthma, and Bright's disease, an old-fashioned term for acute kidney disease. He was buried near his family at Evergreen Cemetery, making a sad, final end to the Burnham family story.
The Axeman had struck again, leaving his signature behind. Once again, the skulls of the victims in both houses had been crushed with the blunt side of an axe. The windows of both houses had been covered. Bed sheets had been pulled up to cover the bodies, and an oil lamp with chimney removed was found sitting on the floor. Who was this fearsome killer? Well, his name will likely never be known, but at least two people may have seen him. Soon after midnight during the early morning hours of September 18th, C. Marshall, a worker at the Golden Cycle Mill, stated that he saw a man acting suspiciously in the vicinity of the Burnham House. Almost two hours later, a milkman who was starting his route also saw what sounded like the same man. They both described him as tall and wearing a light-colored hat. He was never found by the authorities. If he was the killer, he was long gone by the time the police heard about him the next morning. He was already on his way to Illinois, Kansas, and Iowa. In our next episode, we'll return to the town of Villisca and take a closer look at the last night in the lives of the Moore family, leading up to the murders of June 9th. We'll also be making a trip to Monmouth, Illinois, where the Axeman struck again, claiming more victims and yet another railroad town. Make sure the blinds are drawn before you go to bed tonight, because someone may be watching. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Oh man, okay, I'm gonna try this paragraph again after a drink. Frank spent the next. Oh man, <clears throat> here we go. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in season three, which we call Murdered in Their Beds The True Story of the Midwest Axe Murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, well, another episode. Another one we're down, almost. Into the, we're, we're into more stuff now. Yes, so, I'm excited. Yeah. This is yeah. already a fun and upsetting season. <laughs> I think <laughs> two, everybody two can words agree. Two should not go together, but yeah. sometimes do. But so. it's different, and you know, it's nice to take a... Take a break from the ghosts and just get to you know yeah. the, the real yeah. monsters. And ghosts will show up eventually, right? So we'll get there. Yeah. Well, before we dive into this, we have a couple housekeeping items, and we haven't really told people about. We haven't caught people up on. What's, well, that is what's true. Yeah, it's, we started. Uh, I know we've talked about the Haunted America Conference, and as of now, we are now one half filled officially now. Nice. Um, with you know, it's been just a month and a half or so since tickets have gone on sale. Uh, it's three over three months till the conference, so we're gonna be full before it gets here um, again this year. So all I can say is I, I don't know why you wouldn't want to come. I can't even yeah. wrap my head around it. What's your but, problem? Yeah, but if you uh, are planning to come, uh, quit waiting because it's gonna it's gonna fill up. So, and that's uh, ghostconference.net. Is that where the yes, tickets are? Yes, that is correct. Ghostconference.net. Oh, We've yeah. got two evening whiffs. The Axeman. Uh, which is going to be some stuff that is, um, well, if you've wondered about some of the photographs and what some of these people look like as you're listening to the podcast, all of that's going to be part of the presentation. Um, we've got one on May the 4th in Jacksonville at the American Hauntings headquarters. Uh, and then we have a dinner one coming up on August 10th in Alton. And that one will include dinner. The one in Jacksonville will not. We will have a fresh refreshments that are available, but not dinner. So Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, so check that those out. Be fun. Be great. It's a great date night. It's fun. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. If your date is as morbid as you are. Yeah. And so, you know, which is kind of what we go for. Exactly. So, you know. The, uh, with the morbid onlookers. What, what do they call the, the crowds that gathered? Oh, to... the morbid curious. Curious. I, okay. I think that's going to be the name of something. Mor- the it morbid just, curious? I mean, I had written that a long time ago. And it was a, taken from a quote in a newspaper, but I just keep thinking there's got to be a way for me to use that somehow. It yeah. should be the name of something, the morbid curious. So, 
maybe uh, maybe when I start a gang. I was gonna say or as a cult, your band or something. The cult. The cult. I like that. Morbid curious. I like so. that people do flock to you. It's it's <laughs> very entertaining to watch. Okay, before we get started, we have a ten second ad. Go. 10 seconds. Here we go. New Patreon rewards. Patreon.com slash American Hauntings. New spooky shirts. AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. Sponsor an episode? AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com slash sponsor. Now back to the show. Watch. Uh, so, diving <laughs> into our story today. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, why is it that Velisca is the one, like the most infamous of these axmers that that gets remembered and talked about the most. Well, I think that uh, a big part of it is um, so much detail is available about Velisca because it went on for so long. The investigation continued for so long. Where um, the others, none of the others did. Mm. All of the others were a you know a murder that happened or a set of murders that happened, like in Colorado Springs. And then people just moved on. But Villisca, for whatever reason, maybe because it was such a small town. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is the smallest of, of every community we talk about in this entire season. And I think that that may be part of the reason is because the Moors were such a big part of the community. And then everyone that ended up becoming involved, because, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Frank Jones in this episode. And the reason for that was, you know, he was in, in not only an integral part of Villisca as far as the entire community, but would become such a major character in the murder investigation. Mm-hmm. And, and you're going to, I know a lot of people probably wondering who don't know this story are wondering how, how in the world we're going to tie in the guy who runs the bank that's a state senator or, you know, state representative. How is he going to get involved in a murder? But trust me, it it's all intricately involved. And that's why for the longest time, and there are still people to this day in Villisca that don't believe that this was a traveling serial killer. They don't believe it. They mm. believe that this was someone local and it was done because of animosity in the, in, among the people. I mean, you got to remember, it's we're, it's a little over 100 years ago. And families are still around. I mean, descendants of the same family are still around. And there, you know, there are people who will swear to you they know who it was and that it was Frank Jones and he hired somebody to do it. I'm, you know, to this day, um, they don't want to hear about all of these other murders that match the exact same MO. They, yeah. they believe it was local. And that's, I think, a big reason why so much emphasis is put on Villisca. Plus, there are the ghost stories. Yeah. You know, the, the fact that the house is so haunted um, has kept that story in Villisca alive. Where most of these other places, there are very few of the other... Um, locations where the murders took place where the place still exists okay for the most part the houses are gone often they were built in you know they were located in sketchy parts of town right by the railroad tracks yep and uh, because of that you know development has come along and and wiped them out but Velisca is still there you can actually go there and visit the scene so that's a big part of it too yeah so speaking of frank jones um so this guy is just entrepreneur businessman yeah through and through absolutely seems like he was just buying and selling businesses left and right and yeah buying them i mean back you and... know this guy started with pretty much nothing i mean his family were farmers i mean he had to leave home to go to school you know to go to high school graduated became a teacher and then it was just sort of one thing after another i just think he had just such personality and drive 
that people responded to him. Yeah. You know, he was a great salesman, but he was also a, as they said, a, a, a really great bill collector yeah. also. I mean, he just had no tolerance for nonsense, yeah. you know, but on the other hand, it was likable enough that, you know, he started all these businesses. He had loyal customers. He got easily elected multiple times to the, you know, the state house of representatives for Iowa was on all those committees and yeah. you know, all the things that he did. I mean, this guy and, you know, and then you look at it and you say, well, here's, here was a town that at the time had about 2,500 people in it. I'm not sure what the population is now, but it's probably half that. Yeah. Wow. If, if not less, uh, it's a small town now. It's just not like it. I mean, it was always a small town, but this was a thriving small town because mm -hmm. you had, you know, every farmer in the surrounding area came into Villisca to do their business. You know, I mean, that's the only way. How do we explain, you know, several hardware and farm implement companies in the same place, including two that were, as we got to, right across the street from each other. Right. You know, and which so that and so. Know, Frank Jones possibly being at odds with J.B. Moore is one of the, the what fuels some of yeah, those theories. There's about more him, to right? it, which we'll get to. There is there is more to it later on, or at least accusations that have been made. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there's any proof to them, but we'll talk about that later. But a lot of people did say that this all started because you know J.B. Moore had been hired by the Farland brothers to work, and then Frank Jones bought back into the store, kept him on. And then he didn't stay that much longer after Frank Jones took it back over. I guess, you know, nine years he worked for Jones and then the chance came along for him to start his own store. I mean, he was a go-getter. I mean, and, and which was something that I, I have a hard time believing that Frank Jones didn't admire. Yeah. You know, and so here's a guy who's trying to turn himself into something. He's in his early 30s, young guy, he's got a family, he's got a bunch of kids, and he's trying to turn his, you know, really make his career take off. I can't imagine there was a lot of animosity about that. Yeah. I mean, there were already other implement businesses. There were already other hardware stores. So what's, you know, what's the difference? Maybe, you know, right across the street. Well, maybe <laughs> not right across the street. So, I mean, I could see where that would be annoying. <laughs> I could see on one hand it would be annoying, but on the other hand, I would think that he would have some respect for it. So yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm going to, I'll go ahead and say right up front that I don't believe Frank Jones had anything to do with these murders, obviously, since I believe that it was a serial killer. Right. And they had no connection to anyone. So, I mean, spoiler alert, Frank Jones, <laughs> no matter what he gets accused of throughout this entire podcast season, um, had nothing to do with these murders. Right, yeah, I saw you had his picture on the suspects cleared portion of your wall. Yes. Uh, where you're exactly. mapping all of this stuff out. Exactly. So are we ready to dive into Colorado Springs? Then? Sure. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. So September 20th, 1911, six months after San Antonio, six more people are found killed. Um, this is the, the Burnham family. And so this town at the time had only been around for about 40 years. So is this like wild, wild west still? Um, Colorado Springs, that's the funny thing about Denver, Colorado Springs, Boulder, those towns. None of them are that old. Mm-hmm. Um, because that area wasn't settled that much, but none of them were ever, it wasn't like Dodge City, Kansas. Mm -hmm. I mean, these were more upscale communities. Um, well, Colorado Springs especially was built to be a resort. I mean, this okay. guy honestly believed, um, had worked for the railroad for the Kansas Pacific, and he believed that it was a perfect town to start a resort, you know, just turn it into an upscale community. And, um, you know, Colorado Springs is not that far from, you know, like Estes Park, where the yeah. Stanley Hotel was built 
not long, well, a few years before these murders took place. I mean, this was a luxury resort that people came from all over the country, just like they did Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. So it was more cosmopolitan okay. than you would expect from, well, and that's the thing. That's, that's, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of those things that always bother me is everybody assumes that because it was the West that, you know, um, everything was cowboys everywhere saloons. and shoot them ups and saloons. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that was a place like Dodge city where you had, you know, cattle coming in to be loaded on the railroad to be shipped out. And those were rough communities. But for instance, um, you know, there were gold and silver strikes near Colorado Springs, which added to the prosperity of the community. But you know, the most famous example I always think of is tombstone, Arizona. Mm -hmm. Um, because all we ever think of is the, you know, shootout at the okay corral. Yeah. We think of it as this, you know, gunfighters and all this kind of stuff, but it wasn't like that. It was a very wealthy community with theaters and upscale restaurants and, you know, people had their clothing imported from France. I mean, it was a, it was really meant to be a upscale community. Of course, then you, of course you had a bad element. There always was a bad element. Yeah, That's course. why you had lawmen and, you know, people came West because there were fewer laws. That was the whole point. You know, uh, so you did have some of that, but Colorado Springs wasn't really, you know, a any kind of shoot 'em up town at any point in its existence in, in those days. Um, it was meant to be a place that people could come to and get better. You know, it was, um, you know, fresh air, clean air, dry air. You know, the, the mineral people. springs. Right, they came there thinking, "I'll get better." You know, we've talked about that the tuberculosis thing in past episodes, so it's not something that you know we'll get into here other than these two guys that became kind of principals in the story uh, were both at one of the sanatoriums and there were quite a few uh, quite a few different ones there in the area so. got it okay so it's uh i'm guessing early well probably early in the morning i'm not sure but Nettie, who was the sister of mrs burnham can't get a hold of her family yeah, it was actually wednesday afternoon, oh, afternoon. she okay. had seen them sunday evening um she had been visiting with her sister and the kids had dinner and then left and when she came back to the house one of the things that she noted was that everything had been was just like it had been left on sunday night right. so the killer came in at some point late on Sunday night. And this was a case of where I don't believe he was hiding in the house because of the way he did get in through the door because he cut open a screen and got mm -hmm. inside. But then he bolted the doors because they must not, not, must not have been a way to lock them when he left. But he locked the doors and then climbed out the window of both cottages. Got it. Okay. And so while they, they finally get a door open and... She says, oh, suppose we find May and her baby's dead in the yeah, house. Yeah, that was a story terrible. in the newspaper, yeah, that she said that. You never in. say something no, like no, that. No, 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 right? Because then it ends up happening. So crowd begin to, begins to flock. Um, majority of the onlookers are what one officer called the morbid curious. Uh, yeah. I would definitely be in these crowds for sure, like if this stuff was Well, happening. I mean, that's, I mean, you have to, again, you, it's 1911. I mean, that was entertainment, <laughs> entertainment. Yeah, you know, exactly. and so, and people were, people were curious and, and, but it, it also tells you something about the community too, is that the, the crime rate obviously was pretty low. Yeah. If half the town showed up to see what was going on at, at a murder scene, you know. Right. Right. And so this time, uh, as you mentioned, it was two different houses mm -hmm. that ended up getting it. So the Waynes uh, also 
were also killed, and this is where they they found the axe sitting outside. Yeah, yeah and where said, the killer left. And like it. you mentioned, you know, we're talking about the everybody the, had one. Yeah, the life and times. Right. They said it was covered in blood, but they figured they just killed chickens right. or whatever. Right. Uh, apparently, not so much. So again, nothing was stolen. Uh, lamps are left out and fingerprints. But what same good kind of is thing. That? The right. The the same kind of thing. The only a criminalist that they brought in from Fort Leavenworth. The only thing he could really examine were the were the chimneys on the on the oil lamps because he believed that the killer had touched them mm-hmm. um, and had left fingerprints behind. Uh, I, this was 1911, and the idea of fingerprints was still pretty radical. Mm-hmm. That was something that had been that it was being developed in France, but for the longest time in this country, uh, law enforcement officials refused to believe that everyone's fingerprints were different. Okay. They just refused. Um, this this professor in in France, uh, Bertillon, who had had come up with an idea that the Bertillon method of checking fingerprints, and they were just starting to put it into play uh, in Europe, but not here. Um, there were some people who liked the idea and thought that there was something to it, but nobody would cooperate. Again, you got that same problem. Everybody runs their own police departments like their own little kingdoms, and nobody had any contact with any other agencies. Or, or and This was a rare case. They brought somebody in. But even when he did and found fingerprints left behind, what was he going to compare them to? Right. Could because there weren't, the database. Right, there weren't any databases of any kind. You know, they hadn't even really come up with the idea of, I mean, they were starting to do mug shots, but at that point they were still measuring people's heads and ears and all these. That was what they were using for identification back then. Uh, because it was thought, you know, your fingerprints couldn't be different, but the location of your ears were all, you know, and it's right. that kind of thing. So, you know, it took a while. Got it. So the police um, had a few leads, but nothing ended up panning out. They thought maybe a motive for murder might have been a love triangle. That right. didn't really end up. Right. And yeah. then there was, was this when there was some, um, somebody taking a job from somebody else? Yeah, well, that was, yeah, because it, it turned out that Henry Wayne had taken over the job that Arthur had been doing at the sanatorium, Arthur Burnham. So they thought, well, maybe that was it, but that wasn't it. It's just that Arthur was simply too sick to keep doing it. So they, Henry was a young guy who just come started to come there. They put him in that position. Um, they only were acquaintances. Um, they knew each other only a little because Henry, they'd only lived here a month. They'd only lived in Colorado Springs for a month. The Waynes had, so they hadn't been around for very long. And that was sort of the rumor that started as well. What if, you know, what if he'd been fooling around with some woman and then his family shows up and it was the woman who came in and killed everybody, which makes no sense. Yeah. I mean, they were just looking for anything, any kind of ideas, anything that might be possible, you know, who might have done it. Because it, it rolls back to that same thing that happened in San Antonio. The police just simply refused to believe that anyone would kill little children with an axe. Yeah. I mean, it just seems so completely unheard of. Um, so they just assumed, well, it had to be, you know, it had to be revenge. It had to be a love triangle. It had to be something, some kind of crime of passion. And they meant to kill only Arthur or only Henry, but killed everybody else because they were witnesses. That's the only excuse they could come up with. And um, that wasn't accurate. This guy was just killing people. Right. Because he wanted to. And I think children were a big part of why he did what he did. I think in this particular case, he was watching both houses mm-hmm. and was going to pick one of them and ended up because the opportunity was there, picked them both and killed them both on the same night. Um, it's the only double event 
uh, in this killer's history, although there is an attempted one later on. Right. Uh, but he did do this was one, you know, the only night. Two for one, yeah. yeah. And so we so we believe it's the same guy because, again, the oil lamp um, and then the bed sheets have been pulled up. Yeah, over everything's bodies. been covered. You know, the windows are all covered. The, the bed sheets have been pulled over everyone's faces. Uh, the lamp has been left out. He uses the axe at the scene, only the blunt side of the axe. Um, in this particular case, he ate some food and washed up at the scene. Yeah. Uh, and then when he was climbing out the window at the one house, he knocked over an inkwell. Mm-hmm. And it left, it, it left fingerprints behind. But again, <laughs> what are you going to do with them? Right. You know, there's nothing you can do with the fingerprints. So. I wonder, do they, do they still have those somewhere? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I, from everything I've been able to find, there are no files mm-hmm. left of this stuff. Um, I've tried to find the files in... Colorado Springs, I tried to do a search for the files, and they didn't have anything. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I could find were the newspaper reports. Mm. So so how has, um, like, you've been doing research for so long and for so many topics. How has, like, having access to the internet changed how oh, you Oh, yeah, it's research? made everything a lot easier. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, because now you have access. In the last, I don't know. I started using the newspaper online access maybe 10 years ago, but it's changed drastically. There's so much more available than there was when I first started, mm-hmm. you know, using the online archives. Um, so many more newspapers have been, you know, put into the system that it makes it a lot easier to find things. I mean, it's it's still a mess. Yeah. I mean, it's still, everything's out of order. And I mean, it still can be a mess. You really have to put in several different searches and look at the same stuff over and over again, trying to find something different, but it has made it a lot easier. A lot. Got it. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to me that you're able to like connect all these murders and find all of this, these connections. And and, and and most of that was, I did before there were online archives. Right. Well, I mean, you're able to do that without the internet for a lot of it. And then I still see people sharing bogus stories on my, on Facebook all the time. Like guys, just take 10 minutes and, and check this out. Snopes.com. But of course, you know, that's a deep state conspiracy too. Of course, of course, course. you know, absolutely. Um, (laughs) um, well, moving on to something more, uh, the palate cleanser. No, not at all. Um, why do you think he seems to have these like kind of habits or rituals or whatever, but like why pull the sheets up and cover the bodies? You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of different theories about that, and I've read that kind of thing in the past. Um, and this is, I, I, again, I think we're getting, I don't want to get too far ahead of mm-hmm. the story, but um, I think that the most common idea behind that is covering up people's eyes so that they don't see what you're doing. Oh. Um, because there has been some, there's been some suggestions of some things that you know were being done in these houses after he, the reason he stayed behind mm-hmm. for a long time. And, um, I actually talk about that more later because no one could figure out at Villisca why the killer had gotten a, a side of bacon out of the ice box and they found it left right. on the table and he wasn't eating it, but he was using the grease. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean. God, yeah. I'm upsetting. Yeah. I do know um, and so there's been some suggestion that that's what's happening. That's why he's staying behind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never been proven because again, it's not like anybody knew to look for samples. Yeah. You know, they weren't looking for DNA samples. There was no, you know, forensics team coming in, but it's very possible that uh, sometimes when the bodies are moved in different positions and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. that he's, you know, he's getting off on the whole thing, yeah. which is a, 
probably 90% of the time, that's the reason why serial killers do what they do. It's almost always sex related in yeah. some way. And um, that may have been what he was doing by remaining behind. That's again, that's speculation. Right. Uh, but covering their faces so that they didn't see him doing that might explain some of it. I, I don't know. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost impossible um, you have to be, I think, highly trained to get into other people's minds, you know, to figure out what they're doing. I mean, yeah. that's what makes movies like, you know, Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs, right. is people who can do that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm good on you that. Know? I don't, so, I don't yeah. want to be. No, I don't want that. to be either. I mean, if you remember, um, you know, Red Dragon slash Manhunter, yeah. you know, those guys... It makes them nuts right. after a while. Will Graham's kind of crazy. Yep. You know, by the time they call him back into, he's already quit right. and well, left the business. Puts his whole family in danger. Yeah, stuff, well, yeah. there's that too. But so, I mean, you know, I think that that's something I, I can't, I can't, I don't think any of us can know for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just kind of some of the ideas yeah. of why he might do it. It just, it blows my mind too how he would, um, I, you know, I don't, I can't remember exactly the specifics of each case, but I know sometimes you said he would, you know, hit him with the axe, kill them, get everybody, and then come back and hit people multiple times yeah, again. Right. Well, and I think there was some concern about, you know, maybe he heard a noise or mm. maybe he wasn't sure they were dead, you know, and wanted to make sure they were. But and yeah. I think coming back and covering them up, uh, sometimes he would strike them again. It's so, so just bizarre. I mean, it's yeah, all the whole bizarre, thing is bizarre, you know. I guess I'm trying to find a logic in it that's just not there is there. no logic. You know, you can it's it's a compulsion. And we talked about this in our last episode. I talked about that me thinking that this wasn't a plan. These were compulsory OCD type things he did. Mm -hmm. I, and unintentionally, he just had to and he did them. Yeah. You know, um, so there's no way for us to understand that because we cannot be inside of his head. Yeah. You know, it was a hundred and, you know, eight years ago. Well, I know we can't be in their head. This is, I know this is putting you on the spot, but do you think that there are other serial killers that are established that we know of that he would be comparable to? Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. Or, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure there probably are some because mm -hmm. I think there's similarities. Well, I think last last um, episode you mentioned Richard Ramirez, who was just breaking into people's houses. And, right. You know, um, so I think that there's some of that. And I think there I mean, I know there have been other family annihilators like this that, you know, that wipe out these entire families. But most of the time, that's someone connected to the family. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, I think this is fairly unique. I mean, there are other instances of, of events like this happening, but normally it's someone who's either directly related to the family or it's more than one person in it, you know, attacking yeah. a place at a time. The fact that he was able to do this and kill so many people, of course, it was a lot of children though, but right. still so many people at the same time like that mm -hmm. um, I, makes him fairly unique, I think. Was that ever a theory you explored that it might have been multiple killers, like tag team or something? Um, no, just because there was never any indication that there was more than one person as far as, you know, like the footprints left behind in mm -hmm. San Antonio and that kind of thing. What clues were left behind always indicated one person. Um, I also think it would be hard to, in the situations where he was hiding inside the location, where yeah. would two people hide? Right. Mostly, you know, these houses are not that big for the most part in any of these cases. Right. So again, you caught somewhat, in most most times, somewhat sketchy neighborhoods along the railroad tracks. The houses aren't big. 
Right. Well, yeah, I mean, so. where is there enough room for one person to I hide? Know, I know. Exactly. Which and a two. lot of it gets pretty tight. That's why I like my apartment because I can literally check the entire <laughs> thing in 30 yeah. seconds. Yeah, there right, would be nowhere right. for someone to yeah. hide. So if I get scared in the middle of the night, I can assure myself <laughs> and we're good to go. Um, there was some, something that you mentioned that just blew my mind. Um, for the Burnhams, at least, the caskets were open for an informal viewing. Yeah, I thought that was weird. How? Why? Um, why? Uh, that's a good question. I think probably for the same reason that, you know, hundreds of people flocked to the neighborhood. People wanted to see. Yeah. yeah. Everybody has to and, pay a and, nickel or you know, something? And nobody was there. I mean, at that point, Arthur had been arrested just in case. Mm -hmm. They let him out for the funeral. But, I mean, who was in charge of this thing? Yeah. One him. Oh, so it true. was whoever wanted to put on the show would be my guess. So. I just, you know. that is unbelievable. Yeah, people wanted to see. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. They didn't have the internet back then. <laughs> right. Uh, and then so two people may have seen the killer. Yeah, this is always what I found really interesting about this particular story. This is the only time that there was a report. And again, I think I alluded to this in the last episode. I talked about the fact that he had, this was the second largest town mm -hmm. that he ever visited. And I think that there was a reason for that. I think he learned his lesson. Yeah. San Antonio was big. Um, Colorado Springs was decent size, bigger than any of the other towns that he would eventually visit. Um, but I think the fact that he was seen by two people and probably knew that he had been seen at least by one of them, you know, one was a guy who had just left like the late shift at work and saw a guy just kind of hanging out near the house on Sunday night where n nobody should have been because yeah. it was quiet and things were locked up because again, it's dark. There's nothing to do, and so you you go to bed at a reasonable time. Um, then a couple hours later, a milkman, and then so we're talking about early morning hours here. A milkman comes by, sees the same guy. I'm going to guess on his way out, okay. leaving leaving the area. Right. Um, I think the other guy may have seen him early enough in the evening that maybe he hadn't done it yet. Because I mean, the whole thing probably took. I don't know. It's hard to say. We don't know how long he stayed behind, but essentially he could have killed everyone in 10 minutes, mm -hmm. you know, but he probably stayed longer than that and hung around. We know he did. We know he stayed longer. And so if he was there for a longer amount of time when he was leaving, that was probably when the milkman saw him. But it was almost at least the police believed undoubtedly the same man they'd seen. They both gave the same description, same hat, same clothing, same height. Uh, but, you know, if that was him, if that was really the ax man, you know, nobody caught him. Yeah. He was long gone by the time the police even heard about it. Yeah. So I'm sure they looked for him because what else are you going to do? I so mean, and, and every, really in every one of these cases, the police are doing what they can do with the resources they have, uh, which weren't a whole lot, you know, so they just, they did the best they could. You know, they came up with these, which seemed like pretty wild ideas. Oh, maybe it was a woman, you know, um, they came up with some pretty wild ideas, but I mean, that's, that's all they had to, to work with, Yeah, you know, so. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, the police looked for him, but by that point, he was already on his way to Illinois, Kansas, and Iowa. Yeah. And that's what we'll pick up yeah. next Next time. week, we'll pick up in, uh, well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get... We'll get some more deeper into Velisca. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to talk about the last hours in the Moore family, um, what happened leading up to the crime um, and the crime itself, what happened, you know, when things were discovered beyond yeah. our intro in the last episode. Uh, but then there was another murder that we're going to talk about that took place after uh, Colorado Springs, another identical murder, this one in Illinois, um, a couple of hours from here, actually. 
So nice. And yeah, you know, if you're interested to learn more about this and you don't want to wait for us to give you all the information, you can check out the book Murdered in Their Beds. Yeah. Um, it's I don't want to say it's a fun read, um, <laughs> but it's really it's really good. Um, it's one of my favorites so far. It's now time for our Ghost Writers segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so um, as we've mentioned before, some people will send in their thoughts, ideas, jokes, tell me I'm not funny, whatever. Uh, they'll tweet at us or send us messages or email us. At, cringeworthy. Yes, cringe, yes, cringeworthy dialogue. Um, you can do that at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. And so we had a few listeners write in. So Brianna said... Uh, she wanted to chime in and say that the last few episodes of season two and the uh, great outro, if that's what you call it, debate of 2018, it's one of her favorite um, <laughs> things that she's listened to. Whatever. Which, 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 in other words, means that Brianna left the show on. Hey, I don't want to make any and assumptions. And just it, she forgot to switch it off, so she ended up hearing the last part. Well, so. you know, we'll let her decide. Um, mm -hmm. And then Kevin writes in, he said, he had a couple of suggestions for places um, for us to check out sometime. He said a bachelor's Grove cemetery uh, yeah. in Midlothian, Illinois. Yeah. Don't, don't know um, what that is. Well aware. I'm, well, yeah. I've written about it a lot. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And then let's see. Uh, second is uh, Montino state hospital. Yeah. It's Man not Mantino? there anymore. Okay. Yeah. Got it's it. Interesting story. These are both up North. Okay. Uh, Mantino, Illinois is on the uh, northeast side of the state, and there was a really large uh, mental hospital there, like the one over near Peoria. Mm -hmm. It was a big one, uh, but it is pretty much all gone now. Ah. So, but it was said to be haunted. Okay. And then we had an event scheduled there once, and then we found out that they had still had all the asbestos. Oh. In the building, so we decided to cancel. Yeah, mesothelioma. So, yeah. It'll get you. Yeah, it seemed like a bad souvenir for people to take <laughs> home, you know. And uh, Kevin also asked, and I apologize because he wrote this a while ago, but we just we didn't get any of these into episodes. But he's was asking, he was going to be in town. He said, "Are we aware of any ghost tours in the Joliet area?" He said, "Or are there any recommendations for tours in like Portland?" I don't know if you know too much about stuff not really. going out there. No, not really. Um, and I don't know of one in Joliet, but there could be by now. I'm sure I'm there sure. have. There, I yeah. mean, in Portland, I, I, there definitely Portland, has to I'm be sure something. Portland, I'm sure there is. Yeah, but yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. I'm sure there is. But I, I yeah, don't have anybody to recommend. But uh, thanks for thanks for the question. Thanks for writing in. Okay, well, I guess we better wrap this up and let people get back to their real world lives for at least two more weeks until we hit them with another episode. Uh, but guys, thanks for again for listening. Thanks for all of the comments. And, and I did want to say when, you know, I mentioned at Dead of Winter how much we appreciated the response that we've had for the podcast, because honestly, this is one of those things we just started doing for fun. And uh, it has continued to be fun and uh, continues, I think, to actually get better. Uh, despite you debatable know, the, yeah well that's probably <laughs> no true. so i think we're getting better again the guy that gave us the glowing review and then thought one star was great but I that's know. okay i i can I'll take it i can live with that at least it was a nice write-up so but anyway we do appreciate it and we hope that you'll leave us a review on itunes or, or wherever you listen to this at spotify or wherever uh but just keep listening and keep spreading the word and pass it on to your friends if you're enjoying it. And if you're not enjoying it, please let us know. And then I will respond with, what do you want? It's free. So anyway, no, I'm kidding. All right, guys, thanks a lot. And uh, back to Cody. This episode of the American... For the worthless outro. Okay, episode of, This episode of American Audience Podcast no was hears. written by Troy Taylor. It was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. 
In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. So if you've accidentally left this on, go ahead. <laughs> American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, if you love the show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net, and check out our store at AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. And if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week, well, you can have that. You have the chance to support the I love podcast. The inflection you put on that by checking could out just, our Patreon could you be page. Slightly more dramatic, please. Uh, as a supporter, there you, you go. Better. You, you get bonus episodes of the show, T-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. Act excited. We're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment, and with your help. We can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. I wouldn't believe the crap we're using now. Just kidding. <laughs> Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. You can also find your hosts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, be sure to pass them along. Until next time, goodbye, so long, see you later. See you later. All right.